Well, hello and welcome to the preaching ministry of Chicago's Progressive Baptist Church, featuring our senior pastor, Dr. Charlie Dates. Here, we are in a series called Watch the Throne, an expositional study of the book of 1 Samuel. Today, we learned that when we are on God's side, the odds are in our favor. Pastor Charlie, you point out an oxymoron in the main idea of this text. You say God uses weakness to triumph over strength. Why do people need to hear this today? I think all of us, to some degree, feel the encroachment of our inabilities, of our incapacities. Everybody listening to me either has run into or will run into their own human weakness. And looking at your human weakness and judging your effectiveness to overcome the challenges of life and to fulfill your God-giving assignment can be a daunting task. And so the comfort, Ricky, that I think everybody needs to receive right now is that God is not offended by our weakness. He actually delights in using us in our weaknesses to triumph over the things, the people, the circumstances that loom large in power over us. That's why everybody needs to hear this today. It's a good thing to be weak when you're in God's hands. Well, thank you, Pastor Charlie. To our radio congregation, open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 17 and listen to this message from the Lord. Let's listen in. All right, I'm going to preach a passage today I've never preached in my life. There are a number of those, but over the 20 years that I've been preaching, 22 years now, I guess, uh, that I've been preaching, I have never preached the narrative of David and Goliath. And today we turn our attention to 1 Samuel chapter 17. I want to begin reading at verse 33. I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible. It's the longest narrative in all of 1 Samuel. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm going to trust that some of you actually like know a little bit about the story. And I'm going to pick up at verse 33 and go down to verse 50. When y'all got it, can you say I got it? I just missed that. I, I missed that. Here we go, beginning at verse 33. But Saul replied, you can't go fight this Philistine. You're just a youth, and he's been a warrior since he was young. David answered Saul, your servant has been tending his father's sheep. And whenever a lion or bear came and carried off a lamb from the flock, I went after it struck it down, and rescued the lamb from its mouth. If it reared up against me, I would grab it by its fur, strike it down, and kill it. You can tell David's talking about this as if it happened more than once. Your servant has killed lions and bears. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. Then David said, the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go and may the Lord be with you. <laughs> then Saul and his own military had his own military clothes put on David. He put on a bronze helmet on his head and had him put on armor. And David strapped his sword over the military clothes and tried to walk, but he was not used to them. I can't walk in these, David said to Saul. I'm not used to them. So David took them off. 
Instead, he took his staff, his shepherd gear, in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the wadi and put them in the pouch in his shepherd's bag. Then, with his sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. The Philistine came closer and closer to David with the shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he despised him because he was just a youth, healthy and handsome. He said to David, am I a dog that you come against me with sticks? Then he cursed David by his gods. Come here. The Philistine called to David, and I'll give your flesh over to the birds of the sky and the wild beast. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with a sword, spear, and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord of armies, the God of the ranks of Israel. You have defied him. Today, the Lord will hand you over to me. Today, I will strike you down, remove your head, and give the corpses of the Philistine camp to the birds of the sky and the wild creatures of the earth. Then all the world will know that Israel has a God. And this whole assembly will know that it is not by sword or by spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's. He will hand you over to us. When the Philistines started forward to attack him, David ran quickly to the battle line to meet the Philistine. David pulled his, put his hand in the bag and took out a stone, slung it, and hit the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down to the ground. David defeated the Philistine with a sling and a stone. David overpowered the Philistine and killed him without a sword. My, my. That's some good Bible reading right there. I want to tag this text in our exchange today, looking at this narrative. I want to talk from the thought, the odds are in our favor. You may be seated. I want to talk about the odds are in our favor. Will you bow, please, and breathe a word of prayer with me? Oh God in heaven, we do thank you and honor you and praise you for this privilege. I want to thank you for the opportunity to preach your word. I'm going to ask now that you will do for me what you have done so many times before. and Give me clarity of mind, concision of speech, and conviction of heart so that I may tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> we've seen it before in scripture. It's a theme, perhaps a rhythm we've come to see repeated. God likes to use the unlikely, the outnumbered, and the underdog. I think that's what we can say when uh, we saw Gideon defeat an entire army with a shrinking group of men. Down to 300s, he took down all of the Midianites because God likes to use the unlikely, the outnumbered, and the underdog. Not only did we see that with Gideon and his army, 
We saw it also with Jonathan a few chapters before this in 1 Samuel, where he and his armor bearer alone go and fight off the Philistine and ward off their camp. Two men took down 40 plus men because God likes to use the unlikely, the outnumbered, and the underdog to prove his power. It is actually God's MO, as it were, to use weakness to triumph over strength. It's our more human, earthly, pavement-level perspective that tries to use our own strength to overcome our own obstacles. And we tend to relegate God to a last resort rather than our first choice. I know I'm preaching already, even though some of you aren't saying anything back to me because that's kind of how you've lived your life. When your back has been up against the wall and you faced an insurmountable circumstance, your mind undoubtedly wavered to how can I fix this first? Because we tend to use our own power, our own might and our own strength to accomplish victories when we face triumph. But God, God likes to use the unlikely, the outnumbered and the underdog working through weakness to triumph over strength. Here we are this morning at 1 Samuel chapter 17. Haven't we been on a journey, church? From 1 Samuel chapter 8, the rise of King Saul, tall and handsome above all others, coming to this scene of a young shepherd boy who shows up at a real battle scene. And it is a battle scene. I wish, if you've never been to our church, I hope you'll come to Chicago and come tour with us. In the lower level, we have these fantastic murals of scenes of scripture. And one of them in the Old Testament run is a young David about to slay a giant. And in the scene, it's pictured perfectly from scripture. Young David is in a valley. Because when this battle takes place, both armies are on opposing hilltops. It's a strategic scene because Fighting from the hilltops gives the advantage to the most patient army. If an army drops down into the valley, then the other army at the top can easily tackle them or embrace them or kill them as they approach closer. So what the Philistines have done is that they've come to a strategic place and they've taken their champion, their, their man in the middle, to stand down in the valley and to do a kind of representative battle. This is the taunt. The deal is one brave soldier will come fight the one champion of the Philistine army. And whoever wins, the Israeli soldier or the Philistine soldier, their victory is applied to their nation. And their defeat is applied to their nation. Whoever wins, they represent the nation. Stand there for a moment. Picture this scene with me. Forty days, this giant of a figure is belting out one insult after the next. And he is a giant. I mean, this is remarkable. Uh, the text says that he's over nine feet tall. There are other passages in the Bible that refer to his height in varying dimensions. But I just want to say to you, the point is, he's tall. <laughs> 
And not only is he tall, he's, he's heavy, he's imposing. Many scholars tell us that the average height of an Israelite man during this time was right under six feet. I mean, if Saul were six feet three, he, were, he was a very tall man. Goliath, by all estimations, is over nine feet tall. Can you imagine this morning, Charlie, my son, facing Shaquille O'Neal? And Goliath seems to have two feet on top of Shaq. Or Amari facing uh, Andre the Giant. It's, it's unlikely. It, it doesn't seem to fit. And there they are. The, the children of Israel are scared. And their taller than tall king is sitting in repose, hiding in his tent. He's the figure that's taller than all of the others, and he's not out there fighting. And so Goliath says after 40 days, aren't one of you going to come and fight me? We can end this whole shenanigan, this whole battle by someone coming to face me. And there they are, the children of Israel, suspended between fear and fate. Enter in now, young David. David actually shows up not because he's a warrior. David shows up because his father is sending him to deliver groceries to his brothers who are out on the battlefield and to deliver cheese, or ten cheeses, to a general. And he wants word as to how the camp of Israel is doing. Bring back a good report. So David comes to deliver the groceries to his older brothers. And, and like a little boy, David gets caught up in the drama of the whole battle. He's young. He's small, he's intrigued, but he's anointed. He has a power upon him that no one else has. And after making inquiries as to the prize of the person who's going to defeat the general, the, the champion, the man in the middle, well, David ends up suiting up, rejecting the king's armor, grabbing his own stones and David slings his stone and kills the giant, and the giant falls face down, flat on the ground. And that's how the story goes. Or really, is that how the story goes? Many of us think that's exactly what the story is, because that's how we've heard it all of our lives. And I just confess to you, all of my adult preaching ministry, I've never preached this story. This story has often been relegated to children's church. It's just a story we tell the kids. You are young. God will use you. You can face your giants. And you've heard all of those stories about the giants, right? Giants are things that you cannot conquer in your own life. And we've named out giants and Goliaths. And we've called out in metaphor all kinds of giants and all kinds of big imposing figures. And we've made this story about a courageous kid who went to face his Goliath and he took his giant down. Maybe you've even heard some of the allegorical references to the five stones. David went and chose five smooth stones from the riverbed. Those stones have represented everything from obedience to courage to hope. And, and we've named all of the stones as if the stones were what took the giant down. And, and we hadn't even thought that David really only used one of the five stones. So what about the other four? Which one of those metaphors actually took the giant down? 
And then I, like many of you, read Malcolm Gladwell a few years ago as he described exactly what happened in this story. He was smitten by it, taken by it, and, and Gladwell actually scientifically tried to prove what happened. He concluded that the centrifugal force of the stone thrown at the speed from which David was running, at the angle at which the giant approached David, made this defeat humanly possible. And there Gladwell gave to us a kind of human explanation because this defeat is not humanly possible. That's the point. That's, that's the problem with the way many of us have heard this story preached down through the years. That's the challenge that greets you and me as we run into this text. This defeat was humanly impossible for David. And you too are going to run upon moments in your life where your victory is humanly impossible. I know I'm preaching to some people who've got means. You've saved more money during this pandemic than you thought were even possible. I'm, I'm, I'm preaching to some of you who've got more degrees than the thermometer. Your options are open. And as soon as this pandemic is done, all of the job opportunities around the country and around the world are going to open to you. I'm preaching to some of you who are so good looking, you have your choice of whatever human being you want whenever you want it. But the day will come where your money, your degrees, your good looks will fail you. Because all that you have will not amalgamate together, will not come together to give you something to take down what's impossible for you. And when that moment comes, I want you to remember what I'm saying to you in this passage. In this story, this story, it's not meant to say that me and you are David. But this story says we got someone like David whom God uses to take down our greatest impossibilities against all odds. This story says that you and I need a man in the middle to face the giant that is impossible for us to take down. And I want to say to you today that that's actually, I think, the point of this text, that God saves his people not by the might and the strength of his people, but God saves his people by weakness and what looks like human weakness so that at the end, God is the hero of your story, not you. I wish somebody heard what I just said. And I want to be careful to highlight this in a, in a theocentric view from a Godward perspective because much of our Christian preaching these days could really pass off for self-help talk. We come to the preaching and, and we tell you, you can do all things. We lift you up, we applaud you, we, we prod you rather, and we prop you up and we send you out to face a world so that you think that you can, just with a few scriptures and just with a few mild, pious words, defeat whatever in front of you. But can I tell you that if we send you from church thinking that you got the power, that you are David, that you will somehow face your giants and conquer everything, it, it ain't going to work out. Too good for you. Most of us never face a giant in our lives. I mean, we spend our times like I spent my summer 
dodging bees, swatting flies. And if by chance you do face a giant like Goliath, how, how many are you going to face? David faced one. I think, friends, the impetus of this text is to say, slow down and stop trying to be the hero of your own story. Stop trying to take down stuff you don't have the power to take down. You at home saying, I'm going to win this time. I'm going to defeat this struggle this time. I'm going to overcome this time. When really what you need to say is, I'm a little kid owned by a big giant. And if God doesn't come get me, I'm done. Listen to me here, friends. The question becomes, how do we see God fighting our battles? That's a good question. I want to just lay out a few things for you in this narrative, and I'll be in my seat. I, I want to say, first of all, that God fights for us when it is impossible for us to win. That, that's where we, we get at. I, I have uh, often read this narrative and read it with great anticipation and great enthusiasm and have been uh, taken by what it has had to say, but I've often missed what greets us at the curtain raising of this passage. Here it is in verse 1, the Philistines have gathered their forces together for war at Sokka and Judah. Where is that at? It's in where? Judah. I'm going to read that one more time. The Philistines in verse 1 gathered their forces for war at Sokka and Judah. In where? In Judah. Camp between Sokka and Azekah. That's, that's really important. And Saul and the men of Israel gathered and camped together at the Valley of Elah. Then they lined up in battle formation to face the Philistines. The Philistines were standing on one hill and the Israelites were standing on another hill between them. And then came the champion, which literally means the man in the middle named Goliath from Gath. He came out from the Philistine camp. He was nine feet, nine inches tall. Here it is. He wore a bronze helmet and a bronze scale armor that weighed 125 pounds. There was bronze armor on his shins and a bronze javelin was slung between his shoulders his spear and his shaft like a weaver's beam. And the iron point of his spear weighed 15 pounds by itself. In addition, a shield bearer was walking in front of him. The, the Bible's not trying to waste time. The, the, the narrator is actually setting this up to say something amazing to me and you. Watch this. The children of Israel lack the military sophistication to develop real weapons of war. The only person who actually has bronze or iron on the children of Israel's side is the king. The rest of them have weapons likely of wood and stone. The Philistines are so advanced that they have, my man has on, armor that weighs 125 pounds. It's not just armor but it's bronze and iron his breastplate are made of tiny pieces until they consider it like the scales of a fish which means he can move around and be agile while nothing can penetrate through his sophisticated military weaponry are y'all with me but if you are strong enough maybe you could get down to his legs but his shins are covered with iron and bronze his, his spear is like a weaver's beam, which literally is to suggest he's so big, he's the only one really who can carry his spear. It takes two hands to hold what he could hold with one hand. And, and if by chance 
You could get to that. You got to get through the guy who's holding up one of the doors of our sanctuary, a shield in front of him. Here is the idea. You ain't going to get this guy. Not with wood and stones. But it gets even more interesting. I asked you to notice the geography, didn't I? I asked you where they were gathered. They were gathered in Judah. What are the Philistines doing in Judah? Friends, I want to suggest to you that this is a geographical defeat too. That so much of what Joshua had conquered through his promised land conquest, Israel now is seen as losing ground. They are moving backward rather than moving forward. And here during all of this, where is their king who is taller than the rest of them? If anybody should be out there fighting, shouldn't it be them? And, and, and didn't they ask God for a king? Where's all the God talk now? See, see friends, this is how it works. When, when circumstances seem possible to defeat, we got all the God talk in the world. But when you run up against an impossibility, that's when all that God talk goes out the window. Oh, yeah, we, we've seen people praise God when they got some money in their pocket. When you got your health, when you got your strength, when life is going your way. Well, we, thank we, you for joining us today. Tune in next week for part two of 1 Samuel 17. And remember, the odds are in our favor. To learn more about the ministry of Progressive Baptist Church or that of Dr. Charlie Dates, visit ProgressiveChicago.org. And while you're there, click the Give button so that we can continue to bring programs like this to you. We'll meet you here next week.